podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Roundtable. My name is Mike Asbick, and I'm here, as always, with John McDonald. We are a healthcare podcast that discusses career development, non-clinical careers, and burnout prevention. John, good morning. Morning, sir. How are you today? I'm well. I'm really excited for today's topic. So we're going to dive right into it. Today, we're going to be talking about advocacy and how that can be just a huge component of career development but also really a way to give back in, in a way that in healthcare that we can make sure that we're contributing to the greater good. So we have a wonderful guest today whose CV is quite extensive and really quite exciting. But John, before we uh, bring our guest in, why don't you give your famous introduction? You got it. And I do have to say for myself, I have been pumping some other people up in my life about this one. And as our guest knows, um, uh, recently he won Professor of the year from what i understand and so he is a beloved professor and my alma mater so i decided to give him the good old bio that we we had done early on so here it goes today it is my absolute pleasure to introduce a vestige nay a relic of times remembered i'm not calling him elderly but rather i'm calling him a renaissance man as a boy, he was enamored with words that tickled the ears, such as habeas corpus and quid pro quo. So naturally, he took on the title of Esquire following his education. Although some classmates may have dabbled in pharmaceutical arts, Wilston College, our guest, decided to also become a drug dealer that parents are proud of, a pharmacist. An expert in advocacy, past president of Pisney, Current professor and legal counsel, it's my pleasure to introduce a friend, may I say now, a uh, past professor of mine, Carl Williams. Carl, thank you for coming on today. And I know that this was only a part of your origin story that I that uh, I wrote up here. But if you wouldn't mind filling in some gaps for the folks listening today, because this is going to be going global. Well, the only thing I want to add um, to your uh, rendering of my bio is, uh, is the phrase caveat emptor, which means uh, buyer beware and white coats of the round table. Uh, uh, I hope I have something useful to say and, uh, uh, and I, I'm, but I'm delighted to be here in all seriousness. So. so in talking about advocacy, the one, the reason why Mike and I had brought this up, we do talk about uh, different career developments or non-traditional spaces that healthcare practitioners can move into. Um, this is one of those, those conversations that serves a dual purpose. One is it is an alternative pathway, but also any practitioner who is in clinical practice, uh, can also involve themselves in this, whether it's a career move or not. So, uh, being a healthcare practitioner yourself, can you give us a little bit of your journey about how you became involved in advocacy in healthcare? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. 
But I, I want to underline your point about clinical practitioners who every day are called on to put the patient be, patient's interest before their own. And, and uh, often that means you have to advocate with other members of the healthcare team to get to fulfill the best interests of your patients. So starts right there, really. And, and that's always been my starting point since uh, uh, my clinical practice days. Uh, as my career evolved, I, I, I became, you know, a, uh, a teacher. It took a law degree, force of being a lifelong learner in, in front of me, something and we always have to maintain our confidence to uh, uh, to do anything from an advocacy point of view. So I kept trying to fulfill that, moved into education, and, and I quickly found out that the interests of the pharmacy profession uh, were not being well served by state governments who were uh, uh, in, in many ways under the influence of what is an embedded uh, statutory monopoly on the part of um, our, our, our good friends, physicians. They, they've been in driver's seat for a long time and they have um, uh, uh, sort of, with scope of practice regulation, given us a, uh, a hill to climb. We, while we have a national standard of care in education, we have very parochial uh, uh, scope of practice regulations that prevent us from doing the things that we're trained to do, which should be the only question. So quickly after I, I was in um, the, uh, the clinical educational practice, it became clear that uh, um, professionals and not just pharmacists were frustrated with the fact that they couldn't do what they were trained to do, particularly pharmacists. I discovered also along the way that this was a rich source of scholarship for me, something that's required in, uh, in academic life uh, and also service to the profession. So the three pillars of uh, education, teaching, scholarship, and service to uh, the organization and the profession easily fulfilled with advocacy. So, uh, so I, it, it just uh, made a lot of sense to me, but it should make sense to anyone who is a healthcare professional and struggling under scope of practice sort of regulation. I'd like to jump in and can you explain to the listeners what you mean when you say that scope of practice regulations are rather parochial? Because I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that healthcare professionals are not regulated or scope of practice is not regulated at a federal level, but rather there can be a lot of variability. Can you dive into that a little bit more for our listeners who may not be informed? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Can you help make my point for me? And, and this has been, we saw this during the pandemic as well, and that uh, every state is, is these, the powers of regulating healthcare professionals are left to state governments by the uh, 10th amendment to the United States constitution. And, uh, and they take that, they take up that effort through legislation and through the regulatory agencies like the boards of pharmacy and of uh, uh, controlled substance uh, agencies and health departments and the like. And uh, what has happened since uh, Medicare and Medicaid is that scope of practice regulation has been uh, seized upon by state governments. Uh, they're fulfilling their role in regulating professionals. Don't get me wrong, but they, but they have uh, limited 
the ability of professionals to uh, to do what they're trained to do through through those. And when I say parochial, I mean state level state level kinds of um, uh, regulations. This was never more clear to our profession than when we entered into the pandemic in twenty in early twenty twenty, and we discovered uh, that uh, not many pharmacists could test individuals for using uh, what. Um, and I, I uh, don't want to trip over the terminology, CLIA wave tests, um, simple tests that can be conducted by an individual patient could not be rendered by a pharmacist in most states. How, how perverse is that? Because of scope of practice regulations. So federal government passed the PREP Act and uh, um, uh, called an emergency and uh, it gave the powers of the federal government to uh, uh, immunize or protect professionals who would provide uh, services that are outside of their scope of practice. For any of the listeners, and maybe I'm off base on this, but this is my understanding, this goes as, as shallow in case that pharmacists who have to educate a newly diagnosed diabetic, taking them into room, can show them how to use the meter. But, oh, all the hell if we have to show them how to prick their finger with our own hands with their lancet. There, we are now out of practice because we need to have a CLIA wave uh, certificate in order to prick their finger. And how many patients go home that are diabetic who don't know how to test the blood to see how they're even doing? Because we can't really fulfill what is necessary. But that's the perverse nature of uh, the scope of practice is that it uh, doesn't allow pharmacists to do those things they're trained to do. During the pandemic, we needed the federal government to step in and give pharmacists in all 50 states the authority to do that. And by the way, we did that at the state level as well, uh, something that uh, I have some unearned pride to see how pharmacists stepped in and did uh, and did that job. They built out uh, their own personal competence, which was the easy part. We, we all knew how to do that already but also the capacity to do that in their, uh, in, in their independent and their um, uh, chain pharmacy environments. Everyone fulfilled that responsibility. So, you know, I'm proud uh, uh, not for having accomplished that, for, but, but for being a member of that profession. And did we push the state government and the federal government to do those things? Absolutely. That's advocacy for it. Let's maybe continue along the line of just providing definitions. I always want to make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind, especially in a conversation like this that is rather high level. Can you talk a little bit about advocacy more broadly of just who is doing it? I I assume when we're talking about advocacy, we're predominantly talking about professional associations or societies at a statewide level. But can you give maybe a little bit of an overview of what organizations, federal, state, local, may be advocating in what role they're playing within this broader landscape of, you know, interplaying with the government? Sure. I think every professional association exists to provide advocacy. In our world as pharmacists, um, and I, uh, of course, I have to mention the Pharmacist Society of the State of New York first, because I've been uh, directly involved with them and has been the most fruitful period in my professional life to be involved with them in their broad scope of interest. Uh, we, we involve ourselves in uh, um, advocating 
the interests of the profession to the New York State Legislature, to some extent the federal government, although that's a that's a much harder reach for us, but also the state agencies, the uh, uh, the Board of Regents, the Office of Professional Discipline, uh, the Commissioner of Education, the Board of Pharmacy, the Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, the State Health Department, with with moderate success, I think. Um, for lots of different reasons. Go you know, at, at another level, you see uh, here in New York State, we see the uh, New York State uh, Council of um, Consulting Pharmacists. We see uh, the New York State um, uh, uh, Council of Health System Pharmacists, all uh, interested in advocating what is most useful and pertinent for their members. And then uh, with the national level, I, I don't wanna leave anyone out, Oh, the Chain Pharmacists Association, the Community Pharmacists Association of the state of New York. And, and really, in, in essence, they are more about management, whereas the other associations are about labor. They assert the interests of the publicly traded um, uh, and, uh, and private corporations who run chain pharmacies here in New York. Also, but our interests are aligned. And I would imagine, because Mike here is a PA, he, and he practices as a, a medical director of sorts uh, with multiple medical doctors, with nurse practitioners, with pharmacists, with um, other PAs as well, that everything that you're mentioning in the line of pharmacy, it's, it's replicated in all these other terminal degrees as well. So there's vast legislation from, from what I understand, or rather lobbying and advocacy so if we're going to talk a bit more about lobbying directly um, on a level that I'm at where I'm more working with the community, where you are more working directly with the state or legislators, uh, there's quite a gap between those two, right? Where somebody practicing versus somebody uh, practicing legislation advocacy at for their full-time job. With that gap... Um, it seems like we're thinking, oh, we're going to leave it to the professionals. Uh, I don't really have time or maybe not even a, a horse in this race because they have it handled. Like they don't really need me. Is that reflection of reality? Like, <laughs> do you guys really need us at our level, at the lower level, you know, with the limited time that we have? Oh, uh, all politics is local, mm -hmm. I think. And uh, it really begins at the local level. Um, does this mean everyone's got to beat a path to Albany and, and see, uh, you know, 50 legislators in a day? Call your local legislators, call your assembly members, your, your, your local senators, assert what you think is, is correct and appropriate for in the interests of your patients. You can never go wrong that way. There's also county governments where very important uh, uh, in my own county, um, uh, Monroe County, New York, we passed uh, opioid legislation that is appropriate and, and rendered at the dispensing bench that just applies here in the county. Um, so uh, uh, your best bet is to be is to stay heads up. For those of you who don't know what Carl's talking about, up in New York, or rather in, in Monroe County specifically, Maisie's Law uh, was legislated as a result um, or as a consequence uh, of a young child passing away from accidental overdose of an opiate. And so now at the pharmacy bench, 
we require all of our technicians or whoever is working uh, with patients to release their medication to them to notify them that they're getting an opiate and offer naloxone or Narcan to avoid these types of overdoses. So that is a very local impact if we talk about it outside of Monroe County. Most people wouldn't know about it, but anybody in our county can definitely tell you if they're picking stuff up at the pharmacy, it's right on top of mind. So it's a huge impact that overnight impacted me, and I didn't know that it was even on the on the docket to, to be discussed. So, and that's, uh, you know, that's our, our, our local example. Everyone can have an impact and, uh, and people, uh, uh, you, uh, people should not discount the fact that they can uh, have an impact uh, acting locally. Uh, I think um, uh, if, you, if you think in those terms, if you think about what's right for my patients, you'll, you'll see that uh, by through your advocacy, you're putting your patient's interest forward and, and that can never be wrong. That just can't be wrong. May I ask, Carl, what do you think that looks like right now? Um, I do want to keep it a little bit more general, not just for uh, for pharmacists, because Mike here, I don't want to feel him okay. feeling left out as much because I, I see him glaze. No, I, you're not, Mike. I don't oh, thank you. But, uh, but when we say this, you know, call your legislator or um, keep it at the county or even town, city, state level, whatever level we're going to be working at. What are some emerging trends or questions or uh, issues that all providers or all practitioners across the medical team should be aware of or maybe start looking into? Because there's probably a lot of stuff that you know out there that is might be a linchpin for a future of healthcare that we're not aware of. My own personal um, passion is the opioid crisis, the, uh, which seems to be despite all the attention, all the changes in state law, you mentioned uh, Narcan and Naloxone a moment ago, that's changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And the trajectory of morbidity and mortality around the opioid crisis continues to get worse. And, and there are lots of reasons for that, no doubt. One of the things that um, we can now pay attention to now that the federal government has um, given up some control over uh, treatment of patients for opioid um, dependence is uh, with buprenorphine, they, they've given up a measure of control as of um, January 2023. And so now other professionals who were, uh, who were previously restricted from participating can now participate in helping patients use a medication that has been um, the standard of care, has been the gold standard over the last 20 years, but patients have had limited access because they haven't had a prescriber or their pharmacy has not been able to acquire it for whatever reasons. There are lots of fronts to move forward at this point. And, and I have to say, one of the things we're working on uh, from an advocacy point of view, most aggressively, is allowing pharmacists to prescribe buprenorphine at the dispensing bench under whatever relationship with a physician or nurse practitioner or whoever's driving the bus, whatever. Let us intervene at the dispensing bench. And uh, um, I know I've gotten particular 
with this. You, you asked what's generally appropriate for uh, for healthcare practitioners. We're all in this together, and, and this is something that pharmacists can do in collaboration with other healthcare providers. Now, today, nurse midwives, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians assistants, physicians, of course, um, probably podiatrists, dentists, veterinarians, well, not veterinarians, can prescribe buprenorphine. There's no restriction under New York State or federal law anymore, except for pharmacists. So we're going to change that law. I, I, know a, I know a few horses that probably have some lower back pain that can take some of those buprenorphine patches, though, Carl. John, I'd actually like to answer this, too, because... I, I agree with Carl, and I'd love to give the PA perspective. So I've been involved with the New York PA Association, and on average, professional membership in these types of associations is usually about 10%, meaning that out of the total number of licensed healthcare professionals, only 10% will be members of their statewide organization. So as a whole, usually we are in healthcare rather apathetic, and I think that's really frustrating because as Carl was just uh, describing, there's so many opportunities for advocacy that are not just scope of practice, but rather really big improvements that we can make in terms of access of care or improving outcomes. And the way that legislation works, a lot of times it's very slow moving. And whether it be technology, whether it be changes to treatment protocols, our understanding of things, as you were talking about, Carl, with opioids, you know, buprenorphine was highly, highly regulated for the longest time. And it was harder to get buprenorphine than it was to get oxycodone. And that's probably a big problem and a reason why we've gotten here. So I don't think there was necessarily professional disagreement that we needed to reduce or, or make these prescriptions more available. I don't think, at least I hope, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a ton of gatekeeping where there was you know, one healthcare profession that didn't want others to be involved. But I think legislation takes time. And without these professional associations continuing to lobby or advocate, I think the the default position of government at a federal and, and state level is inaction. And our system was set up that way so that everything moves at a glacial pace and everything is very deliberative, but nothing will happen if we're not pushing, if we're not advocating. And it really is important that we fight the professional apathy that I think is our, our baseline stasis. Inertia is part of that. We get wrapped up in our um, professional lives and, and providing care for patients and putting them at the center of our interest. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, that, that is consuming. Uh, we have to uh, think, be deliberate about carving out that space for to be able to make rational public policy change to be part of that process. Um, it's, it can start with just a little, uh, a little time here and there and uh, you begin to see more. So now if we pivot a bit more, we talked about in general uh, what advocacy means to you, what uh, we would hope it means to others, and how to get involved at the level of a provider um, providing medical care to patients. Now, what about advocacy as a career path? Uh, you yourself, you have your jurisprudence degree, right? Not everybody's going to go back to do that. And if I remember, if maybe you remember correctly too, I told you, I think I want to get my JD. Uh, and you said, eh, maybe not. <laughs> and, 
and I didn't pursue it, not because you didn't, uh, it's because I have grandiose ideas. Um, I really understood the law and I saw how it could be changed, manipulated, used to others' benefits, um, interpreted certain ways. And I found that to be uh, something fun for me. But you don't just have to be a lawyer. Who else do you see working in a full-time capacity in advocacy, whether it be pharmacists or other providers? Well, I do see um, other um, healthcare professionals. So, um, uh, if you um, uh, have a chance to uh, 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 go to Albany sometimes and pound the pavement of uh, in the state capitol, you'll see lots of other healthcare professionals there and people that are just um, inherently interested in those kinds of things. Uh, a, uh, any sort of degree, really, any sort of analytical skill will, will lay the foundation for, for being able to be uh, a professional advocate, as you say, or, or a citizen advocate for sure. But um, uh, you see folks, I think the minority are JDs and, uh, and have you know, a, a doctor of laws that um, support that. And maybe that makes it a little easier. Maybe it doesn't. We tend to be an argumentative group when you need to be a, a collaborative sort of mindset to be able to get, to be able to advocate effectively. So uh, really it, it, it takes the will as much as anything, that, that will to, um, to be able to be persuasive and to be able to get your point across and to be able to uh, uh, spend the time to, uh, to advocate for things that you believe in. Will in um, a genuine interest. You can't, you can't fake being genuine, I think. If that's what, it, if that's where we're at, um, we need to find what that is for your, us personally, uh, as Mike does, as you do. What are some resources maybe that you could point listeners to, to say, you know, if you don't know enough about advocacy or you want to educate yourself on the history and impact, where might you go besides a, just a professional organization to learn more about this? Oh, I think the media pay, pay a lot of attention to the media and you hit on the professional associations there. I mean, they exist to do that and um, are, are a source of what's important in the, in, in the individual professions and often advocacy 101. How do I go about contact effectively contacting a legislator? Um, but uh, uh, your the local office. Every every legislator has a local office. Get to know them. Start a conversation with them, and, and be mindful of the fact that um, you're not going to win that conversation necessarily. But know what you want to do going in. Know what your goals are. And uh, be ready to not argue, but roll with resistance if that comes along and see if you can't move them along a little bit on that continuum of getting to yes. So, so that's, um, I mean, that, that's really how you win any issue, any discussion that you get involved with. And legislators are no different in that sense. So, um, uh, but you got to start, you got to, you got to overcome inertia. And, uh, and get to that first point. And, um, and then you build up momentum. As we're talking about this, the big thing that I think 
my takeaway from this is not only that advocacy is important, but also that advocacy can maybe be an important tool for career development. Having advocacy on your CV, having a demonstrated passion for your profession for better outcomes for patients is really a good thing. Can you maybe wrap us up by just discussing your thoughts on the role of advocacy for career advancement for the individual and maybe how that can play a role in making people more competitive or more desirable for jobs? Sure. I think it creates a, a very holistic picture of an individual who's willing to stand up and, and speak towards the right thing. And uh, uh, it, 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 just, it just makes a lot of sense. If you're a professional person and uh, you're willing to do that, folks would, would uh, employers, uh, people who are judging you for professional reasons are going to think well of that. They're, uh, they're, they're going to uh, understand here's someone who will step up in their own personal sphere is my employee or, or my partner in, uh, in, in our endeavors. So it just makes perfect sense to, um, uh, from a career point of view and, um, uh, and, uh, it could be, um, you know, long-term sort of, uh, thing as well that, um, uh, folks will, you'll be the person on the staff that is geared up for those kinds of things or who, who could be mobilized for something that's important for, uh, your partners and your, uh, and your employers. So, uh, it's really a holistic sort of view of an individual who's willing to do that. I think. One thing I've learned as so uh, in this role is that uh, uh, decision-making by professionals of, in every profession is under assault. You have to be able to make uh, professional decisions that serve your patients and your clients. And in no profession is it truer than pharmacy who's been carved out of uh, New York State's uh, uh, corporate practice of professions doctrine. Uh, pharmacists are not, decisions are left to large, um, faceless, nameless, uh, publicly traded corporations. That's got to go. That's something that we have to, we have to get back. We have to treat pharmacists and other professions who are subject to prior authorizations and decision-making by insurance companies that, that pulls the rug out from under you. We need to be able to act in the best interests of our patient. We, uh, uh, we, we do have a PBM law in New York state now, but, um, this is a, this is a battle with New York state government, unfortunately. And, uh, uh, they've got a, they, they need a road to Damascus moment, I think with professionals and, uh, um, become the apostle Paul. So I've got yeah. a great bright light and some white, uh, robes. If you need to come over and borrow those. Okay. Yes, I, I'll, uh, I would uh, look into that for okay. sure. Uh, we do end all of our conversations uh, uh, to keep, you know, our head in the life game, you know, take a break from the sometimes the monotony of our of our work and professionalism, try to keep it a little bit more to life. So we're, we're going to ask a, a question about anything new or exciting or interesting that you have been reading, doing, listening to, acting, whatever whatever you find interesting and exciting for yourself. And I will start us off as I usually do, and Mike will probably try to copy me and try to one-up me. Always. But, 
Uh, I think I've got it this time, Mike. Uh, this last week, my brother and I had a play date that his wife set up for me, which was great. Uh, we met in, uh, in South Bristol in New York. We went hiking up this Creek to do some fossil hunting, which I've never done before. Went in the woods at eight 30, went up the Creek, um, got there about 10 30 up the mountain. And my brother says, Hey, what are those lights up there? And I look up and like, those are pretty bright lights. And I do have video footage. It's very Blair witchy, but we were being stalked by either a large bobcat um, or a New York state mountain lion because it was very large. And my brother and I had to uh, employ some special forces uh, uh, role. What do you call it? Um, Watch and roll or whatever, where you're looking and going back and looking and going back. And then we had, it was more uh, uh, excitement that I, than I need at this age uh, and with the, these amount of children. But we did make it out alive. Uh, I think I scared it, um, but I, I really was more scared. I'm delighted uh, to see you today. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> it's not a guarantee that he was going to make it through that. No. <laughs> Carl, do you have a, a personal item or otherwise I can go if you want some more time to think about it? No, something that I share with um, uh, my students and uh, my colleagues that uh, I, I'm excited about uh, at this advanced stage is to, um, uh, is to have completed my assault on the 46 high peaks in New York State. And so I'm, I'm getting close. I've got three or four to go and uh, uh, hoping to uh, wrap that up uh, this summer. That's exciting. So what are the, the remaining peaks? I know this is probably more in the weeds than our listeners need, but I'm also an aspiring 46er. So I want to hear Marshall, Allen, Seward, and the, the, and I can't name the other uh, peaks in the Seward range, but they are. Okay. All the bushwhacking. ones. Yeah. 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 You know, everyone always leaves the worst ones for last. Good. How about you, Mike? What do you got left? All right. So I'm going to stick with Carl's theme. And I was actually going to do something mountain related before Carl even mentioned the Adirondacks. But I am going to climb with my wife and my dad and maybe my brother. We're going to go do Mount Whitney in the first week of September, which is the highest mountain in the contiguous U.S. And because the Sierra Nevadas, it was a record snowfall this year. So it is mid-June or end of June now. And it is still winter mountaineering conditions on Whitney. The trail is still completely covered in snow and ice. You are still needing an ice axe, crampons, potentially ropes, depending on which route. When we picked to do this in September last year and we put the permit in, one of my dad's conditions was he does not want to do any technical mountaineering. He wanted only class one or class two hiking. And I promised him that Whitney would not be technical mountaineering. So now I'm, I'm watching almost daily because there's a big heat wave that's going to hit Southern California um, in the next two weeks. So I'm hoping that we get lots of snow, um, melting and I'm very happy that the snowpack is great because I know the West needed it, but at the same time, I'm rooting for lots of melt and lots of <laughs> loss of snowpack so that when we go, we can have dry ground and we don't have to worry about climbing over avalanche risk. So that's my obsession lately is watching the snow conditions on Mount Whitney. Well, that sounds wonderful. I, good luck with it. I, I, Thank you. Yes, I'm sure I'll, I'll circle back around and, and share uh, pictures once we get there. So it'll be exciting. Yeah, I'll look forward to it. 
Well, thank you, everyone, so much, Carl. Thank you. I, I'm so happy that we were able to have you on. Uh, the listeners don't know, but it was maybe a little bit difficult to get you on. We had some technical difficulties, and we appreciate you sticking with us. I, I th- hope the call to action for everyone that listened today is get involved, even if it's at a local level. There's so much opportunity for advocacy, for patients, for your profession, for healthcare more broadly. And I hope that this episode inspired everybody to, to maybe look into that and take some action. Until next week, this is White Coats of the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider following us. If you really like what you hear, leave us a review. If you don't like us, then don't review us. Until next time, this is Mike and John. And once again, thank you, Carl, for joining us. Everyone have a great day. 